So with the book of Jude before you, I want to begin by reading a historic statement of the church. It's one of the ancient creeds. You know it as the Apostles' Creed. Let me read it for you. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. That's little C, not capital C. The communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This document known as the Apostles' Creed has for hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years, been the accurate summation of the Christian faith all the way back to the 3rd and the 4th centuries. And in this ancient creed, we obviously learned that God is affirmed as the creator. It affirms very clearly and basically the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This statement, this ancient catechism, not only acknowledged Jesus, acknowledges that he came to save sinners, that one day he will come and that he will judge all unrepentant sinners. And that was really the essence of what Kyle was sharing just a few minutes ago. And I, I so appreciate that challenge, Kyle that if you are here and have not trusted Christ, that the Bible says in no uncertain terms that today is the day of salvation. So the Apostles' Creed also confesses at the end the, the person and work of the Holy Spirit and concludes by stressing the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life in the eternal state. But I need to tell you on this cold January day. Not everyone believes the Apostles' Creed. There are some people who oppose this creed. They stand against these biblical realities. There are some people who actually despise these precious truths. Some people are actually in the process of trying to destruct, to take away the Apostles' Creed. You might be wondering if there's a typo in your bulletin this morning, but I can assure you it's not a typo because the title of the sermon is The Apostates' Creed. The Apostates' Creed. We've been learning about these apostates in the book of Jude, and I want to continue to read with you as you stand with me for the reading of God's Word in verse 8, and we'll read through verse 11. Listen to the Word of the Lord. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they have walked in the way of Cain 
and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in chorus rebellion. May God bless the reading of his word. We pray with me. Father, I pray that you would be honored uh, again today as we open the word of God. Lord, as we have been studying this little book of Jude, we have been challenged, we have been enriched, we have been encouraged. There are so many things that we can learn, and, and that will just continue today. And we pray that your spirit would be our, our teacher, our instructor, that there would be some here that need to be challenged and others that need to be encouraged. God, I pray that we would be ever watchful in the world that you have placed us. May we be Christians who are discerning as we walk around in the marketplace of ideas and make us mindful of the gospel, the gospel that is so very important to this church family. I pray that you guard us in the days ahead, that you would protect us from error, you protect us from false teachers and false teaching, as we have already seen in this book. And so now I pray that you would come alongside your people now, give them the encouragement and the challenge they need. In Jesus' name, amen. My suspicion is that most of you like a good photograph. You know, like a good photograph, or perhaps uh, if photography is not your thing, it's a good piece of art. One of the things that I've learned over the years is that whether it's a, a photograph or a piece of art or a still shot or even a, a, a piece of video, is that these images have a unique power to evoke emotion. And I want to illustrate how images can bring emotion to the surface by showing you several images. Now, some of these images may not affect you much at all. But I, can, I think I can guarantee you there's at least one or two images that will touch you, that will, will even make the hair on your arms to stand up. Let's start with the first one. If you've been around for any length of time, you remember this. I referred to it last week. This is one of the towers that was attacked and destroyed on 9-11. Last week, I shared the phone call that I received early in the morning from a family friend who said, the tower's on fire. We think it's an act of terrorism. And automatically, my, my body tensed up, and I, I turned on the news, and I saw that, that tower in flames. Would you raise your hand if a certain emotion hits you when you see that photograph? You have a certain feeling is these, these images have the power to affect us in some very powerful ways. Now, the second image I want to show you is uh, not as serious, but it is powerful. I can see some smiles on your face and I hear you chuckling. I will never forget. I can't remember how old I was and I didn't do the math because it's way too long ago. I will never forget standing with my best friend waiting in line to see this film. And if, if, uh, if I'm honest with you, it's one of the greatest films ever, ever made. I love Rocky 1 and Rocky 2 and Rocky 3 and Rocky 4 and Rocky 5 and Creed 1. And I have not yet seen the second Creed. And it's almost a crime, I would imagine. But when you see this image, if you've seen the film, you remember the training scene. And you remember all that Rocky had gone through. Rocky Balboa, that scrapper from Philadelphia, fighting against the odds and 
He goes to the top of that platform and raises his fist in the air. And I'm not going to ask you to keep raising your hands, but although it would be kind of cool if you just do this together. But it evokes an, a, a certain amount of emotion in you. I want to show you another image. We're going to shut the PowerPoint off for a minute. I want to show you this work of art. Some of you have heard me refer to my good friend, Pastor Wayne Pickens. I'll never forget the day when Pastor Wayne came into my study in Legrand and he said, you know, I have a thought. I think I'm going to take an art class at Eastern Oregon University. And I remember thinking, seriously? And he said, yeah, it just sounds kind of fun. It wasn't too many months later that he came to my study and he gave me this painting that he painted from scratch. And I want to encourage you later to come up and and take a peek at it because I'm very proud of it. I was sharing with my friend Betsy before the service that it's one of my most treasured possessions. And the reason that's a treasured possession is that whenever I look at this, this piece of art, I remember my friend Wayne. I remember the battles we fought. I remember the tears we shed. I remember some people we had to confront. I remember some people that we affirmed, many people. I remember bringing elders before the church family to share a a powerful announcement. I remember the days when we would sit at Pizza Hut and eat pizza and tell stories and pray together and joke together and talk about ministry and talk about joys and talk about defeats. This is an image that is powerful in my mind. Let's crank up the screen again. Let me show you one more image. This is an image of my feet. And I know it probably won't spark any kind of emotion in you, but it certainly does for me. Because this is the day that I traveled with my dear friend, Ron Koya, and his wife, Christy. And we went to the little town of Worms, Germany. And if you know anything about the Protestant Reformation, you'll remember that in uh, the 16th century, this is where Luther made his last stand, if you will. He was summoned by the Roman Catholic Church, and it's where he made his famous statement, Here I am, I can do no other, God help me. Here I stand. And so there we are in Worms, looking for anything that would give us an idea of where this, this, this monumental event in church history took place. And I should tell you that the building that this, this mock trial or a trial was held in has since burned to the ground. It was burned to the ground the day we visited. And so it made it very difficult for us to find where this event took place. And we literally looked and looked and looked. I was like, we got nothing. And we were standing there, and I was holding a copy of my book uh, by Roland Bainton, Here I Stand, The Life of Martin Luther. And I was just so discouraged. And I said to Ron, I said, I don't think we're going to find it. And then I looked down, and that's what I saw. I went, we found it. We've been standing on it. And so you can imagine the emotion that wells up in my soul when I see this particular photograph. Let me show you one more photograph while we're talking about Luther. We went at the end of that day in the afternoon to the Vortburg Castle. Now, if you remember your church history, when Luther made his final stand at the Diet at Worms, he was whisked away into the night by his friend Frederick the Wise, and they made it look like a kidnapping, but it wasn't a kidnapping. They were, they were taking him to a secure hiding place at the Vortburg Castle. And so we had a chance to visit the Vortburg Castle, and some of you have heard this story before, and I never tire in telling it. We did the typical tour, 
And it lasted for a couple of hours. And I can vividly remember not one thing was said about Luther. You know, I'm interested in all the other things, and it was fascinating. But you all know what I wanted to see. I wanted to see the desk. I wanted to see the room where Luther went to battle with the devil, so tradition tells us, right? I wanted to see the room where he was secluded for 10 months of his life. I wanted to see the room where he, he sat down at the desk and he, he actually translated the New Testament from the Greek into the common language of the day, the German language. And I was getting nothing. And it was at the end of the tour, this kind young woman said, Now the, the tour is complete. If anyone's interested, you can go see the... I was gone. I literally, I, I ran. And there is a, I have since called it the Luther Tube... But it was this narrow passageway, and as I ran, I was literally running, like Forrest Gump. And I'm looking, see you later, right? Because I wanted to be in this room by myself. My friend has since told me, what in the, you're crazy. You just took off and left us in the dust. Well, there I stood in this room, and this is what I saw. This is where one of the great heroes of the Christian church went to battle for the glory of God. And we are the recipients of Luther's scholarship, courage, boldness, and bravery. This might be my all-time favorite photograph. And for whatever reason, God was just merciful. I took this with my, my little Nikon, just cheap little digital camera, and it came out like this. And I, I have given this as gifts to several people to remind them what it means to be a bold performer, to stand in the gap for the truth of the Word of God. And so these images have the power to serve as, as motivators. They have the power to evoke emotion. For the last few weeks, we have seen how Jude places the, the brush strokes on the canvas in this little letter. And these brush strokes reveal the identity, as we have seen, of these theological pirates, these, these apostates, these false teachers who have crept into the fabric of the local church. We learned in verse 4 that these apostates were ungodly. We learned also that they were turning the grace of God into sensuality. Now, Jude, in his letter today, he continues to paint this portrait, and he makes it even clearer for these believers in the first century and for all subsequent believers, that is, for you and for me. And he adds a few more brushstrokes. Today, I want to look with you at the dogma, or what I'm calling the creed of the apostates. And next week, we will turn our attention, we'll go from the creed of the apostates to the conduct and the condemnation of these false teachers. So as we open the Word of God this morning, my prayer is that you would be encouraged, that you would be instructed, that you would be edified. And I would also pray that this passage would serve as a warning to you. That this passage would cause some alarms to go off in your mind because here we are in the little town of Everson and Nooksack and we have false teachers around us. And I want to challenge you to pay very close attention to this portrait that Jude paints. I want you to learn, I want you to recognize the characteristics of false teachers. And next week we will see their final destination. 
Ultimately, I want to evoke some amount of emotion in you. I don't have the power to do that. But I want you to experience fear and reverence and awe as we unpack God's holy word and as we unpack more specifically what we're referring to as the Apostates' Creed. When we think about this creed, I like to refer to it as such, that this is the dogma of the apostates. Now, dogma is one of those fancy theological words. It's a word that I have to admit I I like a lot. It simply means teaching. When we refer to the dogma of someone, we're, we're referring to what did they truly believe. And so we want to look at four important defining marks or the dogma of these apostates. I think you'll find this fascinating. Look with me again at verse 8, and we see the first characteristic or the first dogmatic statement. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. The first dogma of these apostates is that they're driven by emotion. They're driven by emotion. And I say that because of this little phrase that appears in Jude 8, relying on their dreams. And You may wonder, what is that referring to? It comes from a Greek term that is literally translated as dreams. They're relying on their dreams or even supernatural communication from God. Now, that might not sound like a bad thing to you, but I want to tell you that what Jude is referring to here is this. When he says that they rely on their dreams, that is simply shorthand for this. They are relying on subjective experiences. Here we are in 2019. Do you know anyone in our culture or have you read a book or have you heard even a pastor or a Christian speak, someone who names the name of Christ, and they, they place too much stock on feelings. Now, admittedly, I'm saying that photographs evoke a certain sense of emotion. That's one thing. But what Jude refers to here is that these are individuals who rely on subjective experience instead, you want to guess, of the Word of God. That is, the way I feel trumps what the Word of God says. And such a person will inevitably discount truth, He will discount propositional revelation. And at the end of the day, the person who relies on feelings, the person who is driven by emotion, marginalizes theology. And after serving as a pastor for now over 26 years, I can tell you that this is one of the most dangerous, diabolical things that I have seen surface in the church, where theology is marginalized. Where, where I, I can tell you personal conversations that I have had and letters that I have received. Pastor, you're making too big of a deal out of theology. And whenever I read one of those letters or hear the words that someone utters, my mouth just drops open. You're making too big of a deal out of theology? How can that be? What is theology? It is the study of God. And so we can never make too much of God. And so this person discounts truth and propositional revelation and theology. And when these things are discarded, 
inevitably something else fills the void. You see, there's a pattern that occurs in church history. Whenever the the, the preaching of the word, whenever strong theology is marginalized or ignored or minimized, something always takes its place. Have you seen that? It always is, is filled with something else. And so the replacement becomes inner feelings, subjective experience, dreams, and hunches. This is collective theological navel-gazing. And it's easy to fall into the state of subjectivity when you begin to allow your feelings to dictate how you live the Christian life. Now, we're talking about apostasy, but I think we have all succumbed to this kind of, of dilemma in the Christian life. How many of you have ever said to yourself, I just don't feel saved. I just don't feel like God loves me. I just don't feel like God's word applies to me. I just don't feel like a Christian today. Here's one of my favorites. I just don't feel like a specific doctrine applies to me. Even better, I just don't feel like theology is relevant Or I just don't feel like reading the Bible today. If you're listening carefully, I used one word that is consistent in each one of those sentences. It's the word feel. How do you feel? Have you ever been in a small group Bible study? And you go around, it's, this is like an epidemic in the church. And you go around and you say, what do you feel that the text has to say? What do you feel about the text? And, and I've done this, and it gets me in trouble. I want to say, I really don't care how anyone feels about this, this passage. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? And so these, these apostates are, are driven, Jude says, by emotion. I want to ask, what is the antidote to being driven by emotion? What is the biblical mandate? Well, the biblical mandate is that God calls his people not to be driven by emotion, but to be driven by truth. Now, let me say a word for those of you who are more emotionally inclined. There's nothing wrong with being emotionally inclined. In fact, I would say it is absolutely necessary. But we begin by being driven by truth. When we're driven by truth, when it begins in the head and then it drops down into the heart and it ends up, you're in a position where you can't help raise your hands in worship. You can't help but, but, but utter amen. I remember one day I was reading a book. It's become one of my all time favorite books outside of scripture. And I was sitting on the front porch. This is in Legrand. And I was so excited. I just, I won't do it for you because it would embarrass me and shock you. But I just screamed. I was so excited. Not about the author, but about God. That's the kind of emotion that, that we're expected to have when it follows on the heels of truth. And so God calls his people to be driven by truth. And our source of truth is his revelation, which is found solely in the word of God and which is revealed in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle says it like this, knowledge of the Bible never comes by intuition. Boy, that would be something worth memorizing. Knowledge of the Bible never comes by intuition. He goes on, it can only be obtained by diligent, regular, daily, attentive reading. I'm going to take a risk here and say something. 
One of the ongoing things, and I've heard it for my whole ministry, is, Pastor, I'm not much of a reader. I'm not much of a reader. You're thinking, yep, I've said that to you, Pastor. Listen to Ryle again. Knowledge of the Bible comes never comes by intuition. It can only be obtained by diligent, regular, daily, attentive reading. Just out of curiosity, what would you say to someone who, an adult who is illiterate and wants to grow in the Christian faith? One of the first tasks would be what? You need to learn to read. You need to learn to read. And so there's a, there's a great tradition in the church over tr- throughout the course of church history where Christians have helped people in their reading skills. The apostate, however, has no need for these things. The apostate has no need for truth. He has no need for the word of God. And the reason is because he is driven by emotion. There's a second thing that characterizes his dogma. It's also found in this verse, and that is that he is dominated by immorality. Look at with me. Uh, Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh. That's the word that the the few words we want to focus on defile the flesh. Now, the flesh, sarks, refers to the physical body. And these false teachers, believe it or not, found great delight in defiling the flesh. The word defile means to ritually pollute. It means to stain. And I should tell you that the word defile is never a good thing in the New Testament. There are a few places where it occurs. In Titus chapter 1 verse 15, we read about a defiled mind and a defiled conscience. Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. We also read in Hebrews 12:15 about a defiled life. The author says, "See to it that no one fails to attain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many will become defiled." And so it's never a good thing to be in that 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 moment of of having a defiled mind or conscience or life. So we've seen how these apostates are are dominated by immorality. We've seen the the great harm that it causes. Begin, however, with the propensity to be driven by emotion. I found that whenever someone is driven by emotion, the next step is just what we find in verse 8. You begin by being driven by emotion, then you're dominated by immorality. You open yourself up. Listen to 2 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2. Peter says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Again, the false teachers are those who are characterized by being People of of immorality, they are carnal. Some of the contemporary expressions of this kind of lifestyle are things that you've heard of all the time. If it feels good, do it. Love is blind. Or how about this one? Uh, There was a song that was written several years ago, and the line in the song went, Sex sells and the whole world is buying. There's a lot of truth to that. 
sex sells and the whole world is buying. The world tells us this, immorality is cool, right? Purity is out, promiscuity is in. I've been struck over the last several days because there's an example that has made the headlines that reminds us about the the stark difference between the values of the world and the values promoted in Scripture. How many of you know the name Tim Tebow? You got to know the name Tim Tebow, right? He's a great guy. He's a he's a professing Christian. And unless you haven't been online or read the newspaper in the last week or so, you probably know that Tim Tebow got engaged. There are some people saying the poor guy's never going to find a woman, right? He's getting older and older, and he got engaged. And if you're a sports fan, it's no secret that he's not only a Christian, he's made it well known to this day that he is a virgin. And all God's people said, isn't that cool? Wow, a prominent athlete who maintains purity so he can find the right woman and get married, be sexually pure on his wedding night. We say amen to that. What does the world say? When the world finds out that Tim Tebow got engaged, I read a few articles, and I learned that they were having fun mocking him. They were ridiculing him. But in classic Tim Tebow style, he responded like this. He says, quote, we have, to let our, we have to let our dreams, we have to let our passions, we have to let our purpose lead us into the right direction, unquote. That is to say, our biblical worldview, our biblical values must guide us. And I thank God for Tim Tebow that he's a man of integrity, that he let the word of God guide his life. There's another antidote or biblical mandate, and that is that God calls his people to live holy lives. We see these apostates, these false teachers who defile the flesh, who are dominated by immorality. God's word says, here's the solution. God calls you to be a man or a woman or a young man or a young woman of holiness. 1 Peter chapter 1. Quoting from the Old Testament, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but he who has called you is holy. So also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There's another antidote or biblical mandate for us, and that is that we are not only called to be people of holiness, we are called to be a people who mortify the flesh by the power of the Spirit. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Put to death or mortify what is earthly in you. And then Paul gives this, this, this horrible list. These are the things that we're called to mortify or put to death. Sexual immorality, that is pornea, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And by the grace of God, a, a young man like Tim Tebow mortifies the flesh. And what does the world do? You're a, you're a ding-dong. You're a prude. You're a Victorian. Poor guy just keeps going on. It keeps going strong. What an example. Romans 8.13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But the apostate will have none of this, will he? The apostate is dominated by immorality. There's a third dogma that emerges in this passage. We see that he is also devoted to autonomy. He is devoted to autonomy. Notice 
the two words next in line, reject authority. Reject authority. The word reject means to, to disprove, to disregard. You would say it like this. We, we throw it in the circular file. I, utter, I utterly repudiate something, so says the apostate. What does he repudiate? He repudiates authority. The word authority simply means lordship. Lordship. And I hope you're thinking carefully with me this morning. When we get a thumbnail sketch a profile, a, 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 a bird's-eye overview of the apostate who relies on his dreams and defiles the flesh and rejects authority, we're looking at someone who is in deep, deep trouble. You see, the person who rejects authority essentially sets himself up to be a little god. They call the shots They make the rules. They have the power of ultimate determination. They are self-determined. I would submit to you that the spirit of autonomy is overtaking our nation. Few desire accountability. I'm I'm so encouraged when I will talk to to a man who will come to me and say, I am looking for accountability. Now, I can't hold everyone accountable. I can hold a few accountable. But it's so encouraging when a man says, these are my propensities, these are my weaknesses, I need accountability. May we be a church who hold one another accountable, where men hold men accountable and women hold women accountable to the glory of God. There are few, however, in our culture who find joy in submitting to authority. What is the biblical antidote to this problem? It's very simple. God calls his people to obey him and to submit to his authority. Now, someone asked, I met someone yesterday and they said, how long have you been in Everson? How long have you been at Christ Fellowship? And I said, seven years, seven years and a few days, actually. And I can tell you that our time at Christ Fellowship, one of the things that's got, gotten me in the most hot water with people is they hear me say, you need to submit to God. And you you need to submit to authority. You understand what I'm saying here? Is people have this spirit of autonomy. When you run into a person who struggles with authority, you may not be looking at an apostate, but you're looking at a person that you should be very, very concerned with. That is one of the core elements of an apostate. In Matthew 22 The Lord says to his disciples, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And such a person who loves God with every fiber of his being loves to submit to God. You see, there's great delight in submitting to authority, whether it's the authority of God or whether it's the the authorities in your life that God has placed over you. When you submit to God and when you submit to God-ordained authority, here's what you'll discover. You will find blessing in obedience. You will actually learn that to be under the authority of another, whether it's God or the authority structures God's placed in your life, you will find great blessing in obedience. You would say this, that's easy for you to say you're the pastor, but I submit to the authority of the elder council at Christ Fellowship. And frankly, sometimes I think it drives them a little bit nuts because I go to them and say, I need permission. I need help. I need to submit to your authority. 
You'll find great blessing in that. You will experience the joy of obedience when you submit to authority. You will experience the the freedom of obedience when you submit to authority. You will experience peace when you submit to authority. I want to say to young people that submitting to your mom and submitting to your dad is is one of the most beautiful things beautiful things you could do. And sometimes while it may be hard to submit to the authority of parents, it, it is what God has called you to do. In fact, Ephesians 6 says, live according to the authority of your parents, submit to their authority, and you will live a long life. That's an amazing promise. And so I would challenge young people to find themselves in a position where they submit to the authority of their mom and their dad and to find great delight in doing so. There's a final thing that we see as the dogma of the apostate and it, I would acknowledge it's, it's, it's interesting. It's what we're calling devoid of devotion. Devoid of devotion. Read it with me in verse 9. But when the, or rather in verse 8, they reject the authority and they blaspheme the, glory, the glorious ones. When the archangel Michael contended with the devil, disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a, bless, a blasphemous just, judgment, rather, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And what's happening here? That little phrase, blaspheme the glorious ones. That word blaspheme means to, to do one of two things. It means to slander God or it means to slander something sacred to God. In this case, the false teachers, the apostates, slander the glorious ones. And you probably guess right that that would be none other than the angels. But what Jude does is he provides an illustration to demonstrate how foolish it is for these apostates to be devoid of devotion. Here's what he does. He reveals the serious nature of their sin by contrasting their sin, that is to be devoid of devotion, with Michael the archangel. This is the top dog, right? And he says this, when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil and arguing about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a blasphemous judgment against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And so the highest angel among all the angels refuses to utter a slanderous condemnation against the devil, yet these apostates have a totally different approach. What do they do? They blaspheme the glorious ones. This is if Jude through the back door says, this is, this is one of the dumbest things you could do. Well, this is the dogma of the apostates. We see it in, in one slide there. They were driven by emotion, dominated by immorality, devoted to autonomy, and devoid of emotion. Jude says these people blaspheme anything They do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like rational animals, by these things, they are destroyed. Pay close attention to that last phrase. We'll look at it next week. Their dogma, you see at this point, leads them to foolish behavior. Leads them to foolish behavior and it leads them to a path of destruction. Remember, I stood at this pulpit. I believe... Tanya, you could help me out here. It was the candidating sermon. And I'll never forget, Tanya came up to me because I made this statement. I said, sin makes people stupid. 
And if my memory serves me right, it was Ethan who leaned over to mom and said, did he just call me stupid? (laughs) Ethan, that is a classic story. And just to, to reaffirm, I did say that, Ethan. I said, no, wait, let me change this. Sin makes people stupid. When you're driven by emotion, when you're dominated by immorality, when you're, devoid of, when you're devoted to autonomy and devoid to, of devotion, you become foolish. It leads to foolish behavior. Notice in verse 11, Jude writes, Whoa. Whenever you see that word in Scripture, it should cause you to pay attention. Woe to them. It's a, a word that means horror or grief. And that's, again, where we'll pick up next week when we move on and press on from the Apostles' Creed to the, or the Apostles, right? The Apostates' Creed to their conduct and final condemnation. Now, I reached the end of this passage, and I said to myself, Now, I know the church family is going to ask, how does this relate to me? Because my suspicion is the vast majority of you would say, I'm not an apostate. Please don't let me be an apostate. I'm guessing I'd be right. And so how does this passage apply to me? What are the practical takeaways? And there are four that I could determine. The first is this, as we consider the apostate's creed. The first is that we must remain alert. I can't share it with you, but I went through something yesterday. I was reminded in a very, very vivid way right here in our community that we need to remain alert. I want to have you turn to Acts chapter 20 because there's a section of Scripture that is absolutely vital when we consider these things. Acts Acts chapter 20. Here the Apostle Paul is with the elders. He's preparing to go to Jerusalem. And before he leaves, he says, and I want to begin in verse 28. He says, pay a careful attention, speaking to the elders, to yourselves... And so elders, first and foremost, you are called to pay attention to yourself. Paul says to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine carefully. He repeats that here. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Notice verse 31. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. That word alert, it's a great word. It means stay awake. I like to say it this way. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. Stay awake, be alert, be on the lookout. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, the greatest verse I believe ever written for Christian men. It says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Isn't that cool? Act like men, not passive men, not lily-livered men, not tentative men, not, well, I'll I'll think about it, men. But we're to be men, act like men. And then finally, Paul says, be strong. Colossians 4.2 says, be steadfast in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, 
Be watchful. There's the word again. Your adversary of the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This might be a new one for many of you because I know everyone thinks all I do is read theology all day. It's not true, which is most of the day. I love spy novels. There, I said it. So I love a good spy novel. And I was reading a spy novel a few years ago. And the lead character was a guy that didn't like crime and he didn't like terrorism and he didn't like the bad guys, which means I like this book, right? And the author has this lead character, the spy master, in a restaurant. And whenever this character goes to a restaurant, he always sits down in a strategic place. And I have to confess to you that I've kind of taken on this quality. I've been doing this ever since I read the book. He sits in a certain place. He sits in a place where he can see everything. I want to see people coming in and out of the restrooms. I want to see people coming in the the, the restaurant and leaving the restaurant. I want to see everything in case something happens. And that told me something. There's an illustration there. As Christians, we need to never be taken off guard. We need to always be alert. We need to always be vigilant. We need to always be aware of our surroundings. That is to say, we must be students of our culture. We must keep our ears to the ground. We must always be alert. There's a second thing here, a takeaway that I would commend to you if you would turn with me to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 something that is, is very, very important. And we've reached this point in our culture. But understand this, verse 1, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Stop. We live in a culture where we are told, we are told you accept anyone and everyone, no matter what they believe or what they think or what they act like. I want you to see what God's word says is our response with this kind of a person. Verse 5, have or having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Can you imagine saying that in this culture? A person's ungodly, I think I'm going to stand my distance. You see, we are countercultural people. We are countercultural people. Here's the takeaway we are called to run from apostasy. Run from apostasy. I had a friend. Almost 25 years ago, we played in a band together. One day he went to a concert in Seattle, and the people he went with invited him to attend church the next morning. And he attended church with them, and he thought nothing of it. He was told that day at church that unless you get baptized at this church, you'll go to hell when you die. And so that day, as a professing follower of Jesus Christ, my friend, who had already been baptized in a Bible-teaching church, got re-baptized in that church, left his previous church, and I never saw him again. You say, what's the big deal? He fell prey to the heresy of baptismal regeneration that says, if you don't get baptized, you can't be saved. And I never saw my friend again. Listen, 
We must run from apostasy. When we hear false teaching, what do we do? We head for the hills. We confront it, but we head for the hills. Number three, we must remember that God will protect and preserve our faith even in the midst of this apostasy. One theologian says God strengthens our faith both by assuring us that he will preserve us safely to the end, by warning us lest we perish by failing to persevere in steadfast loyalty to Jesus Christ. There's a fourth takeaway, and we'll close, is we must rally around the truth. It was King David that said, Behold, you delight in truth in the inner man, and you teach wisdom in the secret heart. May the truth of the Apostles' Creed undergird your Christian worldview. May the Apostles' Creed encourage your Christian walk, and may your walk be guided and motivated and encouraged by by the truth of God's Word. May your confession be in keeping with Christian orthodoxy. And may the words that come out of your mouth echo the church father and the church fathers, rather, who said this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Let's pray together. Father, this, is a, this has been a challenging run through this book. I know that uh, there are those who think, man, this is, uh, this is pretty negative stuff. And indeed it is. You are helping us to become better acquainted with the characteristics of a false teacher. And so I pray that you would help us to dive deeply into your word, that you would protect us, that you would provide for our needs along the way. We thank you for the many promises that remind us that those things will happen. And I pray, God, that as we move forward as a church family, that we would be committed to the truth, that the word of God would be our our plumb line. It would be our only plumb line. And God, that in the days ahead, many in this community would come to, uh, to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would be forgiven of all their sins, past, present, and future. Lord, we're excited about the, the future direction of the church. Help us along the way to be guided exclusively by your word, all for the glory of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.